Welcome action fans, and thanks for joining us for another edition of All 90s Action All The Time, as we continue our journey through the 90s filmography of Kurt Russell. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Murphy, and on today's podcast, we're talking about Stargate. And who do I mean by we? Well, of course, it's my regular partner in crime. He's one third of the Bloodhound Picks podcast. He's a screenwriter, and he's a man who's been known to have learnt a language or two overnight. It's Mr. Cree Drahain. Glad to be back. Yeah. Excellent. Now, Couldn't as think always... of anything in Egyptian. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was. That was uh, you didn't see the subtitles that had to come up there. That's, uh, it's, I suppose it doesn't really work in an audio form. Uh, you know, like um, we're just we're <laughs> still getting used to this whole podcasting thing. You know, we're, we've only been doing it for uh, three years or so. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> now, as always, before we begin, I need to do two things. Uh, first of all, I need to give you your official spoiler warning. So, yes. In this podcast, we do talk about the movie from beginning to end, the whole plot. So if you've not seen Stargate and you don't want it spoiled for yourself, then go watch Stargate and come back, listen to this episode. The second thing I have to do is give you a little bit of background detail as always. So Stargate was released on October 28th, 1994. It was directed by Roland Emmerich whose other notable credits include the likes of Universal Soldier, Independence Day, Godzilla, and many others. And it was co-written by Emmerich himself and Dean Devlin, who uh, he collaborated on Independence Day, Godzilla, and uh, The Patriot. Um, Review-wise, it is currently sitting at a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb, which... I feel I should mention, is the third highest IMDb score of any movie we have covered so far, only beaten out by Ronin on uh, 7.3 and uh, Tombstone, uh, which I think was like 7.7 or something. Like, it was real high. Uh, Tombstone, highest score. Anyway, 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, based on 47 reviews. 42 out of 100 on Metacritic, based on 17 reviews. And a 3.1 on Letterboxd. At the box office, it made $196.5 million off of a $55 million budget. Interestingly, it was more popular um, outside of America, as it was uh, made 71.5 domestic and uh, $125 million international. Also, it was the 13th biggest film of 1994, uh, sandwiched in between Clear and Present Danger at uh, number 12 and The Santa Claus at number 14. And um, despite the kind of lukewarm critical reception, it did do quite well at the Sci-Fi Awards, um, it winning Best Sci-Fi Picture at the Saturns and being nominated for Best Dramatic Presentation at the Hugos. And of all the films we have covered thus far on the podcast, it is the film with the greatest legacy as it was the catalyst for three TV shows, SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe, uh, two direct-to-DVD sequels for SG-1, Arc of Truth and Continuum, a few novelizations back when that was a thing, some comic books, an animated series, 
So yeah, there's a lot to the the Stargate franchise. And you are familiar with the Stargate franchise, Craig, are you not? But not this movie. Yes, I actually have seen most of all the Stargate series. I I haven't seen the animated one. Um, But yeah, I've seen everything else. But this is my first time actually actually watching the movie before that i saw um basically we'll get to it there's like a less than one minute clip of the soldiers being knocked out by uh, anubis and that is the only part i saw up until this point um so so for me um kind of as we discussed over here it's a bit different um i saw this movie a few times uh, throughout my childhood um i saw it before sg1 uh, premiered in in the uk um so like i was like oh that's i remember that stargate thing let's see what the tv show is like and um and then i watched i never watched atlantis i never watched universe but i did watch all 10 seasons of sg1 and i watched the first direct to dvd sequel arc of truth but i've never seen uh continuum um but uh, people can write in and tell me if that's any good and if i should check it out uh, but i've not seen that one uh, and uh, we were kind of discussing off air a little bit as well of like uh, my feelings for this movie i do have some nostalgia for this movie i remember watching this kid and um but my feelings for this movie kind of extend to my feelings towards sg1 uh, which is like i like this movie I liked SG-1, but I don't love either of them particularly. I do like, uh, as I was, you know, saying uh, off air, there's, it kind of sat in the middle for me of like, there were shows that I kind of watched kind of ironically and saw as guilty pleasures um, in, in terms of like the kind of sci-fi and fantasy shows that I watched as a kid, which were quite a lot of them. So there was things like Charmed and Smallville and Lex that was like, you know, I, I saw as kind of guilty pleasure shows. And then there were shows that I, I just flat out loved and adored, you know, like the, the Star Trek shows, the, the original Star Trek, uh, Star Trek uh, Next Generation, even Star Trek uh, DS9 actually as well. And um, and then things, like, you know, Doctor Who as well and Buffy and like I love those shows. And yeah, SG-1 just kind of sat in the middle of just like, this is something I watch weekly, but like, and you know, I don't adore it, but like I do like it and I like it enough that I do tune in weekly. And um, I, feel, I feel like you were kind of saying a, a similar thing. Yeah, uh, that's pretty much the same. And especially watching this movie for the first time in the series. And again, what I was saying off air was this kind of notion that I think there's a lot of great ideas, but ultimately it just runs right kind of in the middle and, and ends up being a little more bland or generic than I think it could have been. But yeah, that's how I felt with all of the sh- all of the series that I watched of Stargate beforehand. And then, yeah especially watching this movie too now yeah i think i mean i i I think like part of the problem like we'll get into it more as we discuss the plot but i mean part of the thing with the movie is and i don't want to knock it too much for being derivative because the things that is derivative of are derivative themselves so like i suppose you can't criticize it too heavily for that because like basically this movie is part you know like one part star wars one part indiana jones one part lawrence of arabia one part it's its own thing yeah and like i say indiana jones and 
Star Wars themselves are derivative of other things. So like, you know, but maybe maybe they seem less less, you know, kind of they've refashioned themselves in in a in a more imaginative uh, more imaginative way, maybe um that kind of blinds you to their derivativeness. <laughs> no, I could see that. And I think one of the issues I had with the movie is it's either trying so hard to like because I know it was originally planned to be a trilogy or something, Correct. but there's mo but there's moments where they leave stuff open and not uh a earned way i think for the future just you know reveals but then there's also relationships that are kind of built that then are never really expanded upon more but then they reach um a point in the relationship where you think well that wasn't earned at all like between o'neill and jackson or between o'neill and um can't think of his name the kid who's kind of becomes like a surrogate uh, son Scarra. Uh, the kid the kid is is called Scarra. yeah and um, it was played by Alexis Cruz, who is one of two actors in this movie um, who went on to star in a couple of episodes of SG-1. Yes. And so there's those relationships. There's also kind of some um, interactions between the soldiers and Jackson. There's just a whole bunch of stuff where they reach this point where it seems like then they found this bonding and this understanding or whatever it may be. Like, and I even watched the extended version and it's like, well, but you just, you really haven't interacted with each other at all. You just kind of still meeting each other because like you came through the portal together and then that was then you got separated basically yeah which we will we'll kind of get more into as we get into the plot i yes. think i mean that that is a big part of it i mean in terms of like the superiority of star wars and indiana jones they are also just uh better told stories with more rounded characters um, which, yeah but uh shall we shall we dive into it let's do it <laughs> so in terms of like uh things that have brought me nostalgia in the show there there's there's definitely movies that have brought me more nostalgia um re-watching them uh for this show uh particularly the likes of demolition ban and under siege and uh ronin uh you know like there's definitely a few few other films but one of the things that gave me the most nostalgia um from re-watching one of these films uh was the opening of this film and it's not it's not to do with the, so much the, the movie as a whole but just the opening theme just that like i think they kind of repurpose it a little bit um for the show it's not the same as David Arnold's score uh, here, um, which is, this is only David Arnold's uh, second feature film score. He would go on to score the likes of Casino Royale and the Sherlock TV show, stuff like that. Um, but like, yeah, I, this this gave me, this gave me a kind of rush of nostalgia, just that theme. I was like, oh yeah, cool. Um, like, and I, th I almost think that uh, David Arnold's score suggests that the movie is is more epic than it is. Yeah, it does. What What did you think of the? I I really like David Arnold's score for this. Like, what did you think of the music and that theme? No, I I agree actually, and that is kind of one of the parts that it weirdly the the music. Yeah, it's very epic, and it fits kind of with that. Um, what you were talking about, Lawrence of Arabia aspect or all this stuff 
And then there's certain moments then within the movie where, which we'll get into that either are more comical or more, um, that then just don't fit with the, the, I guess the epicness of the score, if, if that's an appropriate way to put it. Yeah. I think that is an appropriate way to put it. Um, so basically, yes, we get the score, we get the epic score as we slowly pan over the, the tomb of Ra, I, I think, uh, you know, as we're, we're kind of slowly panning over as the titles uh, roll. And then the movie itself opens in uh, 1928, although in the director's cut, I don't know if, like, in the extended cut, for you, it would have opened in 8000 BC. Is that correct? Yes. It shows you in 8000 BC a scene that is later when Ra is talking, or when they're finding out what Ra actually is. It's just redoing that scene that I think pops up later. And then, yeah, it goes yep. to 1928. It does the jump, and then there's one little part, the 1928 section, where it shows you at the fossilized version of um the beings that we know but which i don't think is an, i don't know if it's in the theatrical i read it wasn't but no but it's that pops not up again like they, they basically just um so like in in the theatrical in the theatrical version it kind of is like why is this scene here because like basically they just uh arrive at the archaeological dig and then they have a little bit of a conversation and and then the stargate is kind of erected and they're like kind of like what is that nobody knows and then it just kind of cuts to the daniel's lecture at the at the university or, or wherever okay. the, the lecture hall that he's at um and like the other thing that was I thought it was kind of weird about the scene as well. And maybe this is just like a kind of us in the 90s. Of course, we don't care about non-white people. But like the subtitle the Swedish, but not the Arabic. And I was just like, but why? Like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a whole part too that we'll get into when they first arrive where there's no subtitles really. And then later on, I don't know if it was a director's choice because now um, Jackson, when he officially understands what they're saying, then we get the subtitles. Or, But yeah, it's kind of weird with how they handle the subtitles in that movie. Yeah, it, it is kind of weird. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll discuss that more when we get there, I, I suppose. But um, then uh, I, I think like this is kind of like the main bits that are kind of changed in the extended cut. There is also like a little battle that I didn't get that happens later later on, but we'll we'll talk about that later on, I suppose. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're kind of on the same path now. So we cut to Dr. Jackson's or Daniel's uh, lecture, uh, Dr. Jackson played by James Spader and he's giving a lecture about how the, the pyramids were apparently not built uh, by the, the fourth dynasty of, of pharaohs and uh, he's being laughed at by other academics and one of them one of them rather amusingly given that uh, one of the spin-off shows uh, ended up being Stargate Atlantis was he actually mentions Atlantis and like ah what what were they built by Atlanteans <laughs> and then walks away yeah, and it's uh, I don't know the whole thing is him just basically everybody leaves but Spader his character so character is kind of interesting where he's they give him quirks but then they're not there sometimes he's kind of the comic relief but then 
yeah, he, he kind of jumps weirdly back and forth, but he assumes that, oh, why'd everybody leave because of lunch? And, but everybody in the audience made it very clear why they were leaving to his face. It's not like... Yeah, they didn't uh, try and hide it up. Yeah, it's kind of... He, yeah, he's kind of... Weak, and, uh, I'm not... I suppose you're right. I suppose he does kind of... He is sometimes a comic relief and he is sometimes the quirky eccentric and then sometimes he's kind of not. He's kind of like being the, the leader with when they go to the the other planet and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, he's a bit like, um, obviously Roland Emmerich also directed uh, like Independence Day. And he's like, if he was like, he's like both Jeff Goldblum's character and Will Smith's character sometimes. Yeah. And that's how he becomes, especially <laughs> that he's just a linguist and you're kind of, I don't know, it's, he's not, uh, that's not a high enough position, I feel like, for him to really be in control of how he's seen, at least. But I don't know. <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> oh, I suppose we'll get to that, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. well, maybe we should just talk about the things we we're talking about instead of talking about the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, it might get a little bit too confusing for all yeah. the listeners. Um, so... We'll cut back to yeah. the plot. So um, basically, after the lecture, he is offered a job by Catherine Langford, uh, and um, he he doesn't he doesn't want to take the job, um, but uh, she basically knows everything about him and says like, I know that uh, you know you're you've lost your job, you're you know you're behind on your rent, you know like uh, you basically can't afford not to take this uh, secondment with the U.S. Air Force uh, secret something or other. Um, and then he's like, well, I suppose that's true. So I'll just go to your secret military base. Yeah, and when he's there, it. I mean, he kind of, he jumps right in, in a way that, I guess that, again, that's where his, his character element comes in of, like, he, he has this, he's just, I guess, intelligent, I don't know, but he comes off cocky to everybody else, even though he's not trying to be, of uh, where he comes in, looks at the board, and basically, like, rewrites the guy's translation saying oh this is all wrong this is wrong he's crossing everything out and going through it <laughs> i i really enjoy that scene where he like they've been working on this translation for like ages and like like it says was... two years i know in one part yeah no two i i'm not sure if they will be working on that specific translation for two years oh. like i i feel like it's the dials um like the symbol you know like the symbols for the oh yeah the dial in they've been like kind of working on for two years like the kind of uh the stargate part of it um but like yeah so there's that translation on the board and he's like oh it's all wrong and you know this word actually says stargate which is yeah so like i actually kind of wanted more of this because i love the antagonism between the kind of unintentional antagonism between uh, his character, Spader's character, uh, Dr. Daniel Jackson, and uh, Richard Kind's character, who is just like upset by yeah. everything he does. It's like Richard Kind's like just lugubrious face of just kind of just 
just don't i'm just not impressed i just it would uh, you know i could have done with more of that i think um more richard kind in this movie i would have gone down well with me i feel yeah no i agree and i think that's kind of what lacks a little bit in my opinion is that like it becomes a kind of more full-fledged adventure action movie even with with spader's character where i feel like the parts like the science parts are a lot of fun and i almost wish there was more of that in it of him trying you know later on trying to decipher things or whatever because it feels like it's just like he solves everything really quickly i just yeah i wish there was more of that in there even if richard kind's character did come with them or something yeah i i know what you mean i know what you mean because a lot of i think in terms of like the dialogue and in terms of like the kind of backs back and forth that way i think some of the most fun stuff comes out of those scenes and the the fact that like richard kind just feels usurped by this like new guy who's come in and just solved everything and it's like he's just crestfallen that he's been working on it for years and it's just like this guy comes and solves everything in a fortnight like don't i just feel like a piece of shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> But we forgot. To, so we forgot to mention right before that point. Um, we get the introduction of Kurt Russell, yeah, 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 who uh, is kind of in a, a depressive state, and his wife is too, or she's kind of detached from him, and he has long hair. That's and, how we know he's in a depressive and state. It's revealed that he's because yeah. he he's a military like guy and he's got long shoulder length paper so that's like cinematic shorthand for that yeah and it's revealed that his son accidentally killed himself with um one of o'neill's guns basically what the soldiers say to each other yeah and this is revealed i mean like yes the soldiers have this conversation in this car and his son's death I feel is revealed in the clunkiest manner. Oh, you know, it's just this throwaway yes. conversation they have in the car. Like, hey, why is he so depressed? Well, his son died. He, he shot himself with a with a gun, and it was in the house. Oh, okay. Let's drive away from this scene now. Ah, well, thanks. <laughs> You've given the audience the information that they required. <laughs> now you can write off. And that's the yeah. And that's kind of what I was talking about in the beginning of even watching this movie is it is then they give this relationship that's supposed to be the surrogate son with him, but then it never feels like you you could just have why does he doesn't even need a son by the point you're by the time you're watching this, you're like, oh, there was no reason at all for this, <laughs> except to maybe throw in some forced kind of character development or some you know yeah or some pr sympathy pr pretty much like it, it feels very shoehorned in and it's like most of the times he doesn't seem all that depressed and then every so often he does and it's it's not i mean kurt russell plays the kind of transitions well but the transitions are still weird yeah i suppose this might be a good time to mention as well that like so uh, I read a couple of fun things about Kurt Russell and James Spader in terms of them coming on board in this movie. Um, Kurt Russell uh, got the script, thought the script was rubbish, didn't want to do it, and then was basically convinced to do it by his agent because they were like, 
ah, they're they're now offering you this amount of money. And he was like, okay, cool. Um, but it turns out in, a, in an interview I read with Dean Devlin that he was sent the wrong script. He was sent an early first draft of the script, uh, which Dean Devlin himself said was awful, uh, but wasn't sent the uh, final uh, shooting script. And uh, when Kurt Russell saw the final uh, shooting script, he was like, ah, oh, this isn't so bad after all. However, James Spader uh, thought the script was just awful generally. Um, he Apparently, he was sent the right script, uh, but James Spader was quoted as saying uh, this. The script was just awful, and that sort of intrigued me. I don't know where James Spader is going with this. I don't know why you would want think a script is rubbish and being like hey i want to know more but he did and then he goes on to say that made me want to meet the director and then he got me excited about it i realized that making this picture was going to be such an adventure but he apparently was keen on shooting in the desert and that out of that would come an adventure on screen so james spader had a very interesting attitude to this movie yeah but that's how i feel with most of ever is movies is that i don't know why watching them you're kind of like i but you know it's fun for the cat for everyone involved to do to make it because it seems like you know you get to mess around with the special effects or whatever i think it could be fun but then yeah yeah i mean it turned out it wasn't that fun like i also watched like the behind the scenes documentary or that you can see on youtube and like it was fun in terms of like apparently the camaraderie on set was good people got on well that was nice um but they shot in yuma arizona and uh to avoid the june buggy season they shot right in the height of summer in july so they were shooting in like um 126 degree Fahrenheit kind of heats and people were just collapsing on set basically. Oh geez. Yeah, I guess. Because oddly enough, in the unlimited or in the ultimate edition that I have, even though it's the ultimate edition, it only has one kind of special feature, and that is talking about is Stargate real? And oh, it's okay. just like one of those. Like, here's the science behind it, and it does not work at all to this podcast. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Do you know what's great, though? Like, I think, the, you know, when I was reading up on it, the behind-the-scenes documentary, and this is the most 90s shit ever, comes from a Stargate CD-ROM. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and in terms of technology as well, apparently Stargate was the first major motion picture to have an official website. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> uh, but we're only but about 10 well, minutes into the movie, thing, so well, we should probably keep on trucking. <laughs> yeah. So O'Neill comes in and basically takes control of everything, of saying that he's going to be the one to know and any sort of information and that it's only military should be in the know. And he obviously does not think highly of Jackson and so they're supposed to be at odds kind of but Jackson because is he's a little naive to certain things he doesn't really even notice that he's at odds I guess with O'Neill he's just kind of going along with the flow and excited yeah and that's and yeah so we get basically a scene of Jackson going to get coffee and he realizes that 
the symbols that they haven't been able to translate are actually those of star co constellations. So he's finally able to crack the piece, the seven seal. Well, he's able to crack six of them. He knows the seventh seal, but it's not the same as what's on the Stargate. And that's when he doesn't know what that means, but it's revealed to him. As the whiteboard raises up to show the Stargate. Dun, dun, dun. This is uh, one of the funny things about this scene as well. Um, just re-watching it this time, I was like, so when he translates the thing, he's like, ah, oh, that word's not wrong. It, that word's not right. Um, it should be Stargate. And I was like, oh, okay. So he's uncovered that word. But then everybody then everybody in this scene is calling it the Stargate and he doesn't know what that is. So I'm like, were they yeah. calling it the Stargate before he arrived and did the translation? But then, like, what context would they have for calling it the Stargate? Like, oh, maybe I just got myself caught up in knots. Yeah. No, I agree because there are points where it feels like with the first initial blackboard element or that scene, like, where did they just write it that way to try and test him a little bit to see if he would be able to see how good he was and they actually knew what it meant regardless because Catherine kind of seems like she already knows the the mm -hmm. translation stuff and when they reveal they already know that the six of the seven symbols prior to that and so yeah it, it kind of plays weird in that sense of yeah because then you're like, oh, did, did they, they know, know or more not than they were letting that. on originally? Or like, but then, like a lot of things in this movie, it's not entirely fully explained. Yeah, but they test it and they finally get the Stargate open and they send in a probe that kind of shows them where in the known universe that it, it goes, basically. Yes, which is it, it's in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but in the show, it's in our galaxy. So they, that's one of the things that they change um, from this movie to SG-1. And also, one of the interesting things that I learned from, from the research in like behind the scenes documentary is this Stargate effect is done practically because they uh, had a large tank of water and they shot an air cannon at it from about an inch above it and then they turned the image on its side um and digitally enhanced it a bit and and that's how the stargate wishy watery effect um it is is done it wasn't all cgi oh well, i mean it still looks good for you know what did it uh, and it's kind of one of those um nostalgia effects i think that has been replicated so much by now in terms of you know stargate that's yeah yeah for sure uh, and i think like like a lot of films um particularly if you watch films from the 90s where like the effects are like purely cgi often they don't hold up well but effects that are a mixture of practical and like kind of digital enhancements often stand up better to re-watching now than like yeah. kind of pure pure computer effects i agree and so 
you know, moving on is that they want to get basically since the probe was only able to capture a little bit, they want to send in a team. But unfortunately, the only way to get back through is to know how to what constellations to use and the symbols on the other side are completely different than that on the earth side and jackson he just jumps right in of saying that he'll do it even though o'neill says he's full of shit yeah but he still still allows him to and the general says well you're on board as their the team is going to go in to the stargate yeah, it is pretty hilarious how in this scene, I, I know, again, this is one of those scenes that like, yeah, um, it has to be this way uh, for the plot to continue. But like, nobody at any point before they go on this exposition uh, says like, how, how can you get us back? And then he has to explain. Yeah. He's just like, I can get us back. I'm sure I can. And then we just kind of goes, yeah, okay. Seems legit. Seems like a smart guy. Found a sympathy symbol. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, because then when they get across and they have to figure it out, he's like, well, I can't figure it out right away. I need to be able to find other symbols to, you know, figure it out. And everybody gets upset with them. Like, why don't you know it right away? <laughs> Why can't he just get us back? We don't need to go anywhere. Yeah, no, they they are very pissed. Uh, like, I think it's it's very funny how the Lieutenant Kowalski is just like he is like you after Daniel says I, I just assumed, and he's just the way he says you assumed, and he's, <laughs> you yeah. practically see the vein popping in his forehead. <laughs> and oh, this is. Part of one of the team members, and this is our, I guess, connection to the Stallone season and to us talking about Third Rock from the Sun on the Stallone season, is French Stewart is um, one of the soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, he is. He plays Lieutenant Ferretti, uh, one of the few soldiers, like, basically... The soldiers are not really given much characterization. Apart from Kowalski is given some, and uh, French Stewart's character, Ferretti, is also given some. The rest of the team, are, uh, apparently we don't really care about them. And this yeah. this was also French Stewart's uh, film debut. Oh, wow. And this, no, no, it's interesting because it kind of goes with the, um, what was our executive decision episode of having some cast members that don't necessarily seem like they fit with like the ultimate special forces best of the oh, best craig craig send. craig you're giving away <laughs> our secrets really you're not supposed to give away yeah. our secrets um, that we recorded this episode after oh, we recorded okay. executive decision, even though this episode will go out before the executive decision episode. Oh, yep. I got all mixed up. <laughs> so we've not seen executive decision yet. <laughs> no. Even though we totally have. It's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's timey-wimey stuff. It's, you know, it's, you know, just like the doctor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, anyway, uh, so, back to, back to um, the plot, Chris. One, yeah, one key element that we forgot to mention is Catherine, when she was a kid, she found um, uh, what's, it's like a locket of the, the Ra symbol, and she hands it to 
Jackson saying, this gave me good luck my whole life. I want you to hold on to it and bring it back to me. And so that is like our, um, it's like our Chekhov's gun, but it's a Chekhov's locket kind of. Yes. That plays an important role. Yeah, 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 for for sure, for sure it does. So that definitely needs to be mentioned. Also, like uh, I feel like we should maybe mention as well. Like um, I have put in my notes um, before they reach the planet, um, which is called um, a Baos, uh, but it's never actually mentioned in the film. It's just mentioned in like the behind the scenes, and like then like you find out what the planet is called if you watch SG One as well. Uh, but Daniel goes, I've put my notes, Daniel goes through the Stargate after fucking about a bit because he like, he kind of puts his face in the, the watery stuff and he's kind of like, he's playing about with it, he's putting his hands in it and then you get like a kind of whooshy 2001 style effect as you go through, through the Stargate. Yeah, and so when they get back, when they get to the other side, it's basically a replica of the, the pyramids of Giza if I remember yep. correctly. Yeah, Great Pyramid of Giza. Yep. Yeah, and so, so it's just a, a desert, and then there isn't, because it's more of a replica of that, there isn't necessarily uh, any tablets, or there isn't yeah any sort of elements that would indicate what the symbols would be. So that's what leads to kind of all the frustration with the team, because since there is no writing anywhere, Jackson is unable to sit, figure out like what each symbol means. So he wants to go and explore more, see if there's civilization, whatever. And O'Neill is kind of in this stance of he just wanted to go through and then turn around and walk right back again, drop something off just in case, which will play a part later on that, yeah, he has this package to deliver. But it, it is kind of interesting that they would bring it for an idea of going in, going through one way and back the other quickly. They brought as much equipment and as much and as big of a team as they did. That is true. Like they brought like a bunch of supplies. You know, you know, if they were just kind of going in and out, like why did they bring like a whole bunch of food and like tents and like yeah, a lot of guns. Um, you know, it's, it's it is kind yeah. of weird. Um, you think that they'd be setting up for like um a, a couple of weeks, maybe like given all the stuff that they, yeah. they have brought. Uh, but um, but yes, uh, they apparently the plan was just in, in and and back back out again. Uh, so there there we go. Uh, but yeah, so we see like O'Neill like kind of setting something up. It's a bomb. Spoiler alert. And um, while that's happening, uh, French Stewart is uh, bullying uh, Daniel and um, like throwing his books about and uh, kind of saying like, uh, shouldn't you be like uh, trying to get us back home? And then just, you know, throwing his books about. And then, but again, Daniel doesn't really react to anything in this film. So he's, he's just like, ah, oh, that's cool. Whatever. Uh, I'll just uh, kind yeah. of, uh, <laughs> retrieve my books and... Um, and then he's like, uh, again, we're kind of playing on this kind of, oh, like he's like a real eccentric. Um, so he doesn't really care. He just lives in his own kind of world or whatever. And, uh, you know, while he's sitting amongst his books, he sees a kind of strange alien horse thing uh, that is called a mastig. Um, and uh, the mastig is apparently that effect was achieved 
by it was like there's like a kind of plastic frame uh with with fur and stuff like that on top of a Clydesdale horse so that's that's how that oh. was done yeah that's pretty interesting i mean and it's a fact because i thought it was just going to be you know like a puppet or animatronic or whatever no not not <laughs> not not an animatronic um a light plastic frame with some with some fur and stuff uh, just on top of a on top of a shire horse um but the interesting thing is like daniel uh interacts with it and uh, gives it a little bit of a candy bar but then he um he gets caught up and um it's got you know it's got a harness uh, in that and it gets caught up in that and he gets dragged off by it and that affects even more interesting because the Clydesdale horse it like because the heat and stuff and because it was too, the frame was kind of too heavy for it to gallop. Um, that effect where he's being dragged over the dunes, he's not being dragged over the dunes. Basically, there was a mini um, plastic frame uh, with, with the same fur and stuff uh, that was made for a dog. And uh, what you're seeing there is a oh. dog dragging a puppet over uh, sand dunes. Um, but it is achieved in such a way that you <laughs> don't really uh, pick that up. <laughs> It works well, and I think this is kind of one of those moments that I was talking about before where like the epic music and everything, and then there's a scene like this that then feels silly, and it's like, you know, even the soldiers watching it happen, it's like a aw shuck type moment that doesn't fit, but duh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's one of those total things that doesn't mesh with other elements of the movie. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's uh, some bit later on as well, but like it's yeah, it's kind of one of those kind of big campy moments that is just like feels kind of weird because we we get some of these, but there's not enough of them to be like oh this is like a big campy tongue in cheek thing and and you know like it seems relatively you know not it's not super serious we're not we're not talking uh snyder verse grim dark here but like it is it takes itself relatively seriously and then but there is these kind of big campy moments although i in the dean devlin interview that i, I read i think maybe they wrote it more tongue-in-cheek and he said that the actors didn't fully get the tone of it until later on in the movie so i don't know but then okay yeah, that makes sense because some of it does feel like uh, we're talking about that you would see from you know a few years later with like the 1999 or the the Brendan Fraser the Mummy yeah right or things like that where it was kind of like a throwback adventure where it was silly had its silly elements even though it was serious at times or whatever it may be yeah for sure for sure um, but it doesn't yeah for the for the most part it doesn't play campy but then again if the actors weren't really getting the tone just right then surely that's a directorial issue in terms of like emmerich being like actually you know it's can you play it that way because this is kind of the vision uh me and dean have for the movie i, I you know like yeah yeah i don't yeah um but, because um, kurt russell up until this point hasn't really been a huge ego so it seems and he's done a lot of kind of campy action film it seems like he'd be an easy one to talk to about those those issues yeah because i mean he's got a proven track record from like the likes of 
big trouble in little China and, you know, Tango and Cash and stuff like that of being campy. Although it feels like yeah. his character's not really meant to be campy, although, or maybe it's he's meant to be more quippy action hero like in the second half of the movie. Like his character's arc is kind of odd because he kind of comes in and out of, as we've kind of described, he kind of comes in and out of this depression and it's, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. No, that for the first, I'd say, half of the movie, Kurt Russell's character is almost, like, it's basically all Spader, it feels like. And Kurt Russell's character is just kind of there <laughs> doing something, kind of, but not really. Yeah, that, that, is, that is true. That is true. But um, I suppose we must uh, skip along as we get to like basically this is where they, they meet the kind of townsfolk uh like um the they come across the alien mine that is being mined by uh what looks like just like humans um uh, which we will later discover are actually humans um but um and as we kind of discussed at the start of the episode initially these people um, who are speaking some variation of ancient Egyptian uh, are, are not subtitled. And I don't know, I guess from the director's point of view, this is to place us in the kind of viewpoint of the characters of the, the you know, the military team and, you know, Jackson of like not being able to understand. Yeah, which is funny, again, because Jackson gets yelled at for not knowing their language right away. <laughs> well, you're on an alien planet. How would you know it right away? Obviously, it's not like the same elements of if they traveled to a different country. But for most of the beginning, the soldiers just get frustrated with him the whole time <laughs> of why he can't solve something right away yeah that, that does seem to be uh the, the main thrust of his character's journey up to this point of just like you're the smart guy fucking how do you not know smart guy <laughs> yeah, but i do, do like the response where so we, they're talking to the chief and they end up like they're kind of communicating they offer water he offers them a candy he offers them a candy bar and then the chief is, makes the motion of come with me. And, it, and uh, Jackson goes, he wants us to go with them. And Kowalski makes some kind of rude comment about, well, how do you know that? And he makes the motion. He's like, because he wants us to come with him. <laughs> or whatever he said. Yeah, he makes the obvious kind of hand motion of like, come towards this this way <laughs> a, yeah that is that is very funny and then so like yeah so we, we've kind of got two groups um we, we probably should explain that that some of the the soldiers went after daniel when he got dragged away by the mastic and some of the soldiers stayed at base camp including uh french stewart and so, like, it's like Kowalski and O'Neill and Jackson and uh, Brown, I, I think. Uh, I don't know if there's any other soldiers. The, the soldiers are so kind of 
not there. <laughs> I actually forget how many soldiers yeah. there, there, there are. There's just um, basically the ones we've mentioned are the ones that stick out in the mind. And uh, so there's just two yeah. groups there. And Brown, yep. and Brown is kind of supposed to be the the nice one. I don't know. Like that's how they, that's his only character trait of that. He's the nice one to Jackson. <laughs> yes, he is more kind. Um, but yeah, he's, he's given literally nothing to do. So yeah, that's his, that's his one character trait. And um, it does, it's just, again, it, you know, I don't want to call this movie racist, uh, but again, it does kind of feel like, ah, uh, yes, but we've given characterization to our more important white characters. Yeah. Well, and again, spoiler alert, it does, the way they set up Brown is then, like, he's supposed to be the nice one, you think. So then, when he is, again, spoiler, killed later on, like, it's supposed to have this weight, but then it doesn't really because they haven't given him enough depth they've just kind of given him the what you know the lines of being like well maybe i think jackson might be right you know and that's it yeah pretty much um so and again that is entirely uh, a script issue and has nothing to do with Derek webster's performance which is perfectly adequate it's it's, it's fine he's decent in the role exactly yes but uh we kind of so again, this is kind of where like uh, the kind of references uh, come in, or the you know the kind of derivative bits of like. Uh, so we get a scene where they're, they we go back to a, a big party feast in the town, and then he's, it's basically like, oh, we should just eat what the locals eat and stuff like that. You know, Dan Daniel's very much on board for that. Kowalski not so much. And then they present this kind of uh, lizard thing um, and, you know, with the kind of meat hanging out. And, uh, you know, Kowalski's kind of like, ah, you're going to eat that? And Daniel seems kind of unperturbed, kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's a similar to kind of banquet scene in, uh, you know, Indiana, in Indiana Jones and stuff like that. But it kind of plays differently because yeah. Indiana Jones is genuinely disgusting, whereas, whereas Daniel's like, ah, weird lizard meat. Ah, I'll check it out. <laughs> and yeah. of course, it tastes like chicken because everything it does tastes taste like, like chicken. chicken. Yeah. Uh, any well, white meat then, in the universe uh, tastes like chicken, yeah. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he tries to start writing and as he's doing it, the chief is basically kicking the, the sand and trying to prevent him from writing, but then it instant and they see the symbol of Ra right on on the on his locket thing, and so they instantly start putting him in this robe and cleaning Dan or yeah cleaning Daniel while the other soldiers are just still there. And so you're going through this whole scene of seeing Daniel being cleaned, and then um, the chieftain's daughter comes in, who is the chief is what having her wed daniel basically are giving her to him because they assume that he is an emissary of Ra. that is true which they already kind of, they already knew because they've already seen the locket yeah because like in in the first scene where they meet them like everybody like kind of bows down to him because like they've already seen the locket i think like it was this kind of like oh he knows writing as well that's 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 pretty amazing on top of the emissary thing oh i definitely gotta give my daughter away um, so and uh, the the chieftain of the village um, Kasuf uh, is played by Eric Avari, 
who is kind of one of those actors who's just kind of put in roles of like uh oh he can be he can be indian he can be iraqi he can be egyptian he can be tunisian he's just like one of those actors that all they would just like yeah he's like middle eastern right <laughs> and he is in the mummy there you go he is so, in the mummy um, there's the connection. again um he was he was actually uh born born in india but like he's uh just generally any he's played basically every kind of asian culture asian you know characters from pretty much every kind of asian and north african country that's not like a far east asian country so it's like like hollywood just cast them as anything because you know ethnicity is kind of elastic and you know particularly in the yeah but we get one of those scenes kind of moving on where he where jackson is you know to show that he's a good good person he doesn't take advantage of her of the chieftain's daughter he has her put her clothes back on but he they act like they he is interested as to not offend any of them because they're basically waiting right outside of his hut or his room and yeah yeah yeah, they're kind of all standing around waiting for the consummation uh, of the marriage. And then this is where they have a, like a kind of a sort of conversation of where he starts writing stuff again. And like she's like, no, don't do that. And then but then she recognizes a symbol and that kind of starts off like uh, the catalyst for Daniel uh, learning the language uh, overnight. Uh, but this is also intercut with yeah. uh, the scene this the one scene that you have seen from this movie before watching it for this podcast yes um so you have the other soldiers the french stewart and his crew which he's kind of like a third in command i don't know what his title is but he is a giant spaceship that looks like a pyramid it is basically floating and lands right over the other pyramid where they're at during the sa- the uh, really bad sandstorm happens, which causes them to go inside. And then through it, there's kind of these unseen soldiers that start picking off. I want to say there's four on the team in there that starts picking them off yeah. kind of one by one in this building and in this kind of big room and through, you know, hiding behind pillars or whatever it is. And then French Stewart is able to get a glance and see one, but I think he's the only one out of that group that's actually, or no, there's one. So there's two of them that are actually not killed. I feel like. Yeah, that's right. French Stewart and there's the, and then the other two you assume are killed because, well, I mean, they're never, they're not shown again after that point but but that's really all that you see from that yeah yeah and even though it's not explained like it is in star trek apparently those like laser staffs can be set to stun and set to kill because like they are of various strengths at various times in the movie yeah and there's some that yeah and it's even different in terms of the stun there's like a stun where it's just zaps them or there's a stun they'll blow them across the room or yeah, it's just, it, they don't really figure out what the caliber of those staffs are. Nope. <laughs> and it, it's fine. You could just like, I can accept that, that they have like different levels to them, but like at least in a, you know, in Star Trek with the phasers and stuff, you can see like, they've got like a little dial. that's like, Oh, this set to stun. 
Yeah. Again, you know, uh, maybe I'm asking too much in terms of logic of the movie, but the lack of consistency in the laser blast always kind of perturbed me. Yeah. No, that makes sense because it is just a regular staff that they're holding for yeah, the most no, yeah, like, so dial or don't really there's get no, to like, see the, the work. And, and this is an interesting thing as well. So, like, I. So, while. I was just going to say about this attack on the soldiers in terms of the structure of this film is that it happens like i clocked it i you know i decided to write the time down this attack happens 56 minutes and 29 seconds into the film which is like a a long time for this to kick in as an adventure action adventure was kind of the the weird part because the movie in terms of that that screenwriting structure that they make up where by 15 minutes you have the inciting incident by 30 minutes you have the act and um you know so on and so forth by 30 minutes is when they go through the stargate so up until that point it all kind of makes sense but yeah um then it's just kind of a lot of getting to know the area there are a lot of pauses for the type of movie it's trying to be yeah for the kind of big sci-fi action adventure it doesn't really have like zippy pacing like uh, there's there is a lot of kind of detours and just kind of and not particularly like characterful detours in terms of like we don't like learn loads more about the characters it doesn't the detours don't necessarily give the film more depth it's just like there's just some scenes that just feel like kind of oh we're just hanging out we're just kind of it, it feels kind of meandering but then like you know when the action does happen it's cool and you know there is cool scenes in the movie and there's there's a lot of fun stuff here but yeah it's kind of oddly paced for this type of film so after that happens you see um kurt russell as o'neill and the kid is coming up and he shows them the lighter and he gives them the lighter and smoke his cigarette and coughs and he throws on the ground and you know it's supposed to add kind of a humor this element but then he grabs the gun and o'neill quickly yells it about you know grabbing the gun and that it's not safe but he doesn't understand that element because you know they're not speaking the same language but it it's like scenes like that that feel like they're meant to kind of start building the relationships more are the characters more but then they don't really even though i guess on paper it seems like it would but maybe if the movie was two and a half hours or longer where they could actually kind of develop these relationships better it make more sense but it just yeah it just really doesn't go anywhere even by the end point where they're again spoiler when they're getting giving salutes to each other it doesn't feel earned it just feels like a bunch of scenes (laughs) yeah i would agree with that uh for sure yeah it just the yeah a lot of those scenes just kind of um sit there um even though i mean they are perfectly well played i I think most people uh, play their parts uh pretty well in in the movie you know alexis cruz is pretty good as scara um we've not really talked about um Daniel's bride, uh, Shauri, who's played by Mili Avital. Uh, she's pretty good, and um, even though she's not given a lot to do, but yeah, they just there's something about them that they just uh, they don't add much flesh to the bone, really. Exactly, and I think uh, because I was going to talk about her more, but and it, it pops up in a lot of westerns. It pops up in other, you know, this notion of a character being married off to maybe the people of that planet i'm pretty sure it's happened on a star trek episode or any sci-fi series you find has some part of it but yeah she just kind of plays that role 
of the quiet who instantly falls in love with him. And again, that's kind of it for her, besides the fact that she leads him to, leads Daniel um, to the cavern, or the, not the cavern, the, like the caves, which actually have the writing, where he's able to finally kind of decipher everything, except that the last, the seventh symbol is still, is all worn off and missed. Thing, but he's able to figure out kind of the history through a big exposition dump that he has. Yeah, and the the symbols in itself, and that kind of solves all of the science elements that we liked so much earlier. It's like, oh, okay, here's all your science, and back to kind of action part, and we're bringing in raw now. Yeah, although I I do have to say, in terms of like some of the filler scenes are quite funny. And one of the funny filler scenes, before we get to the scene where we find out, oh, we can't find the, the seventh symbol, the seventh symbol has been rubbed off where, where the team kind of meets back up again. Like there is a scene where uh, Kurt Russell uh, as, as O'Neill is trying to find uh, Jackson because Jackson's gone off with uh, Shaori, uh to these caves uh, to you know so he can learn the language uh, in a couple of hours it seems and um, he is uh, talking to Scara Alex Alexis Cruz's character and his kind of group of other boys that he hangs out with and he obviously they don't speak the same language so they're trying to communicate back and forth and the they kind of clock that he's talking about Daniel, but they 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 know him through like his reaction to uh, the the chicken, like he because he did when he when he uh, ate the lizard meat, he said, "Oh, it tastes like chicken," and then did like a chicken clucking noise, and then we just have this weird random scene where there's loads of these boys going, "Ah, they doing this chicken clucking noise," and like Kurt Russell's like, "Yeah, chicken man." <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a fun scene. No, yeah, no, that's the funny part because he's trying to do the glasses and he's trying to do everything else and they're just not getting it. And uh, yeah, he at one point he even mentions, I'm sure you don't know what or dweeb means nothing in your language or something like that. Yeah, I think this, uh, some some of his funniest lines uh, come, come in that scene. Um, but uh, Kurt Russell gets to, to have a bit of fun. Um, but then, as we mentioned, they go into the caves. They find out that there is no seven symbol after finding the other symbols. Uh, so that's god damn it. And um, we don't really talk much about the kind of the bomb uh, that uh, that that they have. Um, but um, the the they discover um, that um, I think uh, this is where like. Brown and another soldier uh, die, and then they discover the nuke is missing, and then everybody is transported to Raz's throne room. And again, I've written this down because it's it's interesting just in terms of like the way the movie's uh, structured. Ra is the main villain of the film, and even though we've seen him in flashback uh, not that long before, um, this is his proper villain introduction. And it happens an hour and 16 minutes into the film. I watched the theatrical cut of the film that is on Prime. Uh, this film is in total two hours and a minute long. And yes, this introduction happens an hour and 16 minutes into the movie. So we've got like 
basically the last 45 minutes of the film uh, for this villain to make an impact. Yeah, and it, it does feel kind of strange because throughout when you're figuring out what happened, you learn that Ra was an alien where his whole race, well, its whole race had died off and it was trying to find a way for immortality and found humans. And when we see the, if you watch the extended cut, you'll see it at the very beginning. If you watch the theatrical, it, it plays during this exposition. But you have you know this person who went up to the pyramid and then what we know of Ra basically put possessed or sent himself into this human body because what we learn is that human bodies are easier to fix than other alien races and able to make immortal through um, what we find later on this, I don't know, it's like a pool of water that fixes things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it kind of, you get all of that. So what also happened was Ra was on Earth, but then Earth started an uprising and sent him back through the portal. And that's why he banned all writing and everything with the slaves that were already on his planet's side. Um, so that they would never know the history and they wouldn't be able to rise up again against him or yeah and that is basically that whole section and then but during it um we get the death well not really spoiler but we get the death of jackson because of o'neill like it, it kind of he gets shot through it and then o'neill is sent into uh, a prison where you find kowalski you find um Ferretti, and you find um there's one more soldier who is just random soldier. <laughs> Doesn't really have any purpose other than what is about to happen. Yeah, that's true. They're, they're thrown into this kind of uh, watery prison and yeah, that, uh, anonymous other soldier guy. <laughs> there is a couple of interesting things that I want to mention in from this scene. So first of all, Ra is played by Jay Davidson, who is most famous for his role that he had a couple of years before this, uh, where he was in The Crying Game. And um, he basically didn't really like the fame uh, that that gave him. And uh, didn't really want to act again and when he was approached to act in this movie he said sure i will act if you give me one million dollars thinking that was too outrageous a fee for them to actually give him that uh, so that that was his play but then they were like sure we'll give you one million dollars and he was like oh okay yeah i'll act in the film then uh sadly uh, apparently he had some uh, drug and alcohol issues at the time which um led to him having to have like big cue cards on set because he kept forgetting his lines uh, so so yes and, and yeah, he basically, he didn't do that much after this. He, he basically just did a couple other roles and then just returned to being like a, like a fashion model um, because obviously he preferred that to, to acting and, uh, or to the particular type of fame that he got from being in the movies, apparently could keep a lower profile um, as a model. So um, yeah, the, the kind of strange career of uh, Jay Davidson and the strange detour uh, for him. And also in this scene, uh, we get a cameo uh, from Dinjun Honsu, um, who people will know from the likes of Gladiator and Amistad and stuff like that. But uh, this was uh, one of his uh, earliest, um, well, one of his earliest kind of substantial 
uh, supporting roles as like kind of the number two henchman Horus. Like Anubis is like the kind of number one henchman, but he's like the the number two uh, henchman. So that's the couple of things that I wanted to highlight uh, from this uh, particular scene. But um, as we roll on plot wise, uh, we get uh, a village. The village at is attacked. Uh, by Ra's uh, forces. And uh, you want to tell us more about that, Craig? Yeah, so Ra sends out, it's basically two um, fighter jet things to go and just lay siege to the to the city as basically a warning, be, or yeah, a warning for and a punishment for um, helping the travelers because the whole point is that Ra does not want these people to ever think that know who I guess they are specifically that they're not gods and yeah he just wants to make sure that he keeps control so he even at point decides to use Daniel taking off the the locket saying that. You they will only know of one raw that i'm going to have you kill your own team or i'm going to destroy you because they need to know my power and so yeah basically goes to this whole thing and at this time too um kind of the group of youth are starting to realize that you know they've been tricked their whole life and they're kind of wanting to start a rebellion a little bit but the chieftain and yeah anybody that's a little bit older are more upset about the fact of that we angered the gods and they still kind of believe in that and just before that um like the kind of the start of the rebellion being on obviously um you mentioned before the kind of watery tomb thing that kind of kind of you know repairs uh wounds and and, and stuff like that and and keeps ra uh, immortal um and it does the same magic uh for daniel's wounds um but it ca it's kind of weird it's kind of like why did he do that like you know it's like you know they, they've killed off these other soldiers they're clearly enemies it's just like why did they keep daniel around it's like oh we're gonna save daniel because i really need somebody to give this villain speech to uh so yeah this guy I want to give the villain speech to this guy. Yeah, that's how it feels. I mean, I was wondering the same thing watching it. I didn't know, was well, it because Daniel knows their language or because he's wearing the, the locket thing that also has the symbol of Ra that he feels like he just needs to tell him. But then you're like, well, based on the plan you, that you've created, don't technically need Daniel. I mean, he isn't, doesn't even need to kill his own team for your plan to really work. But yeah, for some reason, he decides to fix him up just to be able to kill him again, I guess. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, again, uh, we're, we're looking for logic uh, where there, there probably isn't any. So that is one of the many themes of the show. <laughs> but yes, he Bra basically orders uh, Daniel to execute his team. So he's he's given one of the the laser staffs, which is is very kind of very trusting of of Ra to be like, oh, I'm going to give you you're you're definitely going to do this. We've definitely agreed to this. You're definitely not going to double cross me and shoot any of my men uh, with that laser staff that I've just given you. Um, that's definitely not going to happen uh but um so and it, you know 
Daniel's got a hard look in his eye. It looks like he's going to kill O'Neill, Kowalski, and Ferretti. Uh, you know, it's uh, again, you know, as an audience member, you're like, but but he's not right. You know, it's, that's not going to happen. But you know, but they're really playing it up. And uh, James Spader has given it his all to try and convince us that this is totally going to happen. He is going to execute his own men. But then that's, of course, until we see that amongst the crowd who have come to witness this execution is Scara and the boys. And uh, they kind of give the nod and uh, show under the robes they got the guns that O'Neill and the team brought for for some reason, even though apparently they were just going to come and then leave again. Uh, and yeah, so the rebellion is, is on and a battle starts. And of course, um, as predicted, uh, Daniel does turn that laser staff on Ra's men. Well, and it's interesting during that whole thing, it would make more sense if they made Daniel, you know, again, with character development, if they made him into kind of more of a selfish person or more of a, you know, person not wanting to die at all. But yeah, this whole setup from the beginning to that point, you're like, well, obviously he's going to turn on them. There isn't anything in his character that's been given prior to this that would suggest he'd be willing to kill these people. And then, uh, yeah, they don't even point their staffs at Daniel to make sure he does it. And then all the youth somehow having not found the guns, they've learned how to successfully use the gun without any sort of training or anything at all. But yeah, they're able to get away as their robes are thrown on them and they basically run into the desert with the, the sandstorm coming and Kowalski gets separated through it and Ferretti, but um, O'Neill and Daniel are on one and it almost kind of feels like a scene from against Star Wars Empire Strikes Back or something where you're watching it going, are they going to have to cut the animal open to burn inside of it or what's going to happen? But no. Yeah, uh, for sure. And then, um, yeah, then we we get a a fun scene of uh, Ra being all villainous. Again, he he doesn't, because he's got so little time to kind of make himself a prison and a prison uh, a presence and um you know like make himself the kind of the big bad of the movie even though it's just kind of stuck in the kind of final 45 minutes uh you know they, they give him they throw out this uh villainous scene for him uh where he like basically fries one of his own henchmen for failure um with this kind of little effect uh where he, he grabs uh like the henchman's head and then just kind of zaps them. And yeah, I mean, the effects are kind of all right. Uh, apparently, like the little uh, eye effects, the little glowy eye effects were put in in post-production because the initial test audience didn't think he was alien enough. So they were like, oh, putting the little glowy, glowy eye effects. No, what I was saying was that, yeah, it's you could really kind of feel that after the fact um, with the, the effects because it, it, it feels off in a way of the the eyes changing colors and so that makes sense what you were talking about and i forgot to mention that ra waited on by a bunch of children which we'll i'll talk about when the ending happens because it kind of plays into (laughs) something that the film doesn't acknowledge but yeah okay yeah yeah yeah. i I think I, i know where you're going with that uh but 
we we sh- we shall see. Uh, <laughs> we we keep giving kind of little promos of things that we might say later. <laughs> it's a, it's a running theme of this episode uh, for some reason. Yeah, it's just like the movie in itself of being kind of a, a promo for the trilogy that they wanted to do or a promo for the TV. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, even though apparently, yeah, the, the the TV series thing is is weird because uh, apparently MGM wanted Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich to audition to create the TV series. It, it you know it developed in a strange way. I think um, Carl Cole Pictures had to sell off a bunch of things um, because basically they were about to go under. And they had like one last throw of the dice uh, with uh, Cutthroat Island, which obviously didn't go well. And uh, they were selling things off. And one of the things they sold off uh, was this uh, to MGM, who distributed the movie, but didn't produce the movie. And uh, yeah, MGM almost immediately wanted to make this into a TV show. And uh, yeah, Dean Devlin apparently felt very aggrieved for many years um, that uh, they never got to do the sequels and they were basically shut out of the TV show and basically hated the TV show for years um, but then came to peace with it and apparently made uh, friends with one of the co-creators of the TV show uh, Jonathan Glasner so it all all worked out happily in the end but as we return to the movie uh, this is where Daniel discovers that uh, Shaori is his wife and he hasn't he didn't realize that before but he's like oh okay yeah there's a little scene where somebody says refers to him as Shaori's husband and he's like what husband and uh, yes so that was a marriage ceremony that he went through and um, yeah then there's a, a kind of little scene where there's just it's like, oh, and now they are together because the plot says so. Where he's like, because she's like, oh, I, I won't tell him that you don't want me. And he's like, what? No, of course I want you. And um, yeah, and they're like an item now. They're just a married couple now. Well, and that, yeah, I guess kind of plays into a lot of those other movies like that. And you end up, it does, it feels really forced. I mean, that whole kind of thing. And I know in SG-1, there she's in it a little bit. But yeah, it's kind of, uh, it, it all just feels forced. And after the fact, all the scenes kind of, yeah, or all the scenes after this don't necessarily even fit more into it. I don't know. It's just another thing that meanders away from the main plot. <laughs> yeah, but then I sh- the main plot, gets back into action as uh, we have like um, they they find the Daniel finds uh, the seventh symbol uh, there is a fight back um, at the mines and uh, Kasuf the, the the chieftain is outraged by this and is like no what, what are you what are you doing you're gonna fuck everything up uh, but then uh, the little kind of there's a little button on the kind of helmets that the, the gods have and it reveals uh, the face of uh, Horus the, the character played by Dungeon Hunzu and uh, and it's like look this is your gods and and then uh, they're like all oh, right yeah right fair enough that's uh, that changes everything uh, we we thought 
that we thought that's what they actually looked like. We didn't think they looked like us. Well, fuck them then. Yeah. And uh, so Ra is basically going to be sending the nuke with the new components made from the Stargate, which will be once it goes through the Stargate back to Earth and erupts, it'll basically destroy the whole planet. And they also want to send um, a bunch of other things. So their hat, the caravan is coming of apparently they assume slaves to place into the for stuff to place into the stargate but as we know the audience as we've seen it many times the reveals is that um all the soldiers and the rebels now are all kind of the ones in disguise as these slaves delivering these items and walking past the guards all that until the other big reveal, which creates the, the huge action scene with one group on the inside, which is O'Neill, Daniel, and then um, Kowalski and Ferretti and their team are on the outside taking on like the fight, the fighter jet things and the, yeah, the outside forces. Yeah. And there's a, a couple of things like I, I wanted to highlight one from the behind the scenes, because it's hilarious. This story definitely needs to be told of so from the behind the scenes documentary, the kind of gliders, the 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 fighter gliders of the Raz men have that are like shooting the lasers uh, onto onto the onto the rebels. Um, so the design of those gliders, um, Roland Emmerich had a particular design in mind, and basically they, um, yeah, they look like kind of little flying kind of anchors you know it's it, it's an odd kind of clunky looking design but the producer didn't uh didn't like the look of them and uh he was like no you can't have spaceships like this and then one of the production designers uh showed a design to roland emmerich uh for that was a kind of bird-like design uh, for raz belt buckle and you know he showed them his straight ways up and then like Basically, uh, Roland Emmerich uh, kind of turned it, you know, on its side, and it was like, "Oh, this would make a cool spaceship. It make me a spaceship like that." And the guy was like, "All right." <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, they look good. You know, it kind of reminds me actually watching this movie and knowing that he would do Independence Day. Uh, a lot of Stargate, especially in the design, some of the alien elements, it feels like a precursor to Independence Day of like testing stuff out before they did that one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I feel like, um, yeah, that, that is a, this is a test run for a bunch of that stuff. And obviously, I, Independence Day has a slightly higher budget. So this uh, film had a budget of something like 55 million whereas Independence Day, I think, was something like 75 million. So they got an extra 20 million to play with. Um, and I think you can see the difference on screen because Independence Day actually d does look like a, a much bigger scale movie. And like, uh, yeah, they, they nailed the tone with that one as well. And talking of the tone, uh, the one of the things I put in my notes was that um, in that scene where they kind of sneak in and they pretend to be the slaves or whatever, there's a bit where, where O'Neill kind of says, like, ah, how are you doing? And I've put, I've put in here, 
uh, O'Neill gets quippy at one hour and 38 minutes into the runtime. Yeah, no, that was in my notes as well. Of And it just, it, again, it feels kind of, it feels weird because if he was like that throughout, it makes sense. But throughout, through a lot of it, he was kind of brooding and all that. And so, yeah, at this point, it, it almost feels too late for that. And then he goes back to brooding for a second. And I mean, you do find out with the bomb, O'Neill was never planning to come back. It was just on that whole mission where they packed all the stuff for, but it was just supposed to be a, you know, I guess a day trip in and out. Um, O'Neill was always going to basically stay behind to set the bomb off that would just blow up the Stargate. And, um, you know, until he gets talked to by, by Daniel about, you know, fighting for life and, you know, one of those whole chats that you have in movies like this. But I, I think Kurt Russell is great in it and I think he works well, but it definitely is one of those things where from the script perspective or directorial perspective, it, it goes back and forth a lot. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's just, it is just weird to eat. Like, yeah, there is a little bit again where he's showing the signs of being suicidal, um, which he's showing a couple of times throughout the movie but not enough for it to feel kind of solid as a through line and then yeah he's just in this kind of like last 20 minutes he's just kind of quippy uh which you know which you know kurt russell is good at he's good at being quippy but like uh it just feels weird that it happens uh so late on in the film but yes i suppose we should truck on on with the plot goings on and um so it, this is a stage where like uh daniel is 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 back in the the he Shuri gets injured at this stage. Um, Daniel transports himself to the throne room uh, to try and shave, uh, save Shuri uh, with the magic water that's kind of goopy stuff that's unexplained in the watery tomb, uh, you know, which heals stuff. And um, O'Neill is having a big battle. Uh, with Anubis, and he gets obviously his his best uh, quippy line of uh, "Give my regards to King Tut, asshole." Uh, just as Anubis is decapitated by the kind of um, transporter thing, where there's like these kind of mini stargates like come down, and then they kind of teleport down in a, a kind of tractor beam, um, which looks pretty cool. I, I like that effect. What do you think? Yeah, I like the effect too. I think it worked kind of well. And what happens is, so whatever, when one comes down on in one side, it also comes down on the other. So if you happen to be on the other side of it, the I guess the upper floor of this elevator, or, or however I'd put it, um, then you would get transported down to the bottom, which happens with Daniel as he's kind of getting his brain fried by Ra. But then he's saved because the transporter then comes down and sends him back down with um, Nauri. And um, yeah, and only the head is transported back up of Anubis to the top half. And then it's kind of weird because like after having so many kind of random filler scenes where we're just kind of oh we're just kind of hanging out uh, we're just meeting characters we're just kind of hanging out and the movie just like wraps up like real quick so like on the outside uh, it looks like it's all going wrong you know the spaceships are firing at the handful of rebels plus the soldiers and it looks like you know Raz men are got 
the upper hand and all that. And then, of course, riding to the rescue, uh, we see Kasuf, uh, the chieftain, on one of the sand dunes. And then loads of people just suddenly appear. It's one of those classic kind of action beats. Uh, and then Raz men are kind of look up and then they're just kind of like, ah, we're clearly fucked now. <laughs> um, and, and then, yeah, on the inside, we, we've had that, you know, like uh, Anubis is defeated, you know, Horus is defeated, everybody, everybody's defeated. And then it wraps up really real quick. And then Rad basically decides to flee. He's like, oh, well, the rebellion's on. This reminds me of what happened back in ancient Egypt on Earth. I'm going to have to go to a new planet, get some new slaves. And then, um, yeah, like uh, O'Neill and, and Jackson both look at each other uh, going, I've got an idea because like, it, we've discovered that O'Neill now can't turn off the nuke. Whatever Raya's done to it, uh, the nuke uh, now cannot be turned off. And they both have the same idea at the same time. And um, what's that idea, Craig? The idea is that they're going to send, since Anubis's arm is still on their side, um, that means he has the button to start the, the transporter. So they're going to send the bomb into Ra's ship, which is now it's out in outer space. So they send the bomb there. When it arrives into Ra's ship, he sees that there's only, I think, like about eight seconds left. And as he's kind of transporting to back into his original alien form. And the part that, of course, I was going to bring up earlier is that all of his kind of servants that are a ton of children you can only assume are also on board and so but that's never we don't talk about that we don't see them after, during this whole thing we just know that apparently there's a bunch of children that <laughs> daniel and o'neill just knew yeah I, <laughs> but that point kind of just reminds me of uh, randall's speech in clerks about the independent contractors on the still being constructed second death star and return of the jedi yeah <laughs> but i mean it's an entirely fair point you know like uh, we have apparently uh, just killed off uh, a bunch of kids this is another thing uh, that apparently didn't go down well with test screening audiences was not the kid nobody brought up the kids apparently uh this this is something just you have brought up uh, nobody apparently cared about the kids uh, but we just got a shot of the spaceship exploding apparently in the original ending that was just it we was shot of the spaceship exploding but no shot of ra himself dying um apparently audiences did not like that and that's they later inserted the shot of like Ra being like incinerated. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean it, it works. It, you kind of see Ra switches back to his alien form as and then he's eviscerated that way. Uh but yeah, after this point though, it just again what you were saying, Scott, is it just wraps up really quick. It's like, oh, okay, they're going back home. Daniel's staying and they say, I'll see you, you know, I'll see you around or whatever, and then it's done. And he hands um O'Neill the the locket saying, Give this back to Catherine. But yeah, it it feels that it, it ends really abruptly like you could tell that they were planning for it to be a trilogy instead of making one solid movie first and then you know yeah i i, I definitely think so like uh, there, i mean there's a lot of stuff in here and a lot of stuff that's not like fully developed um but you know as we have 
pretty much now reached the, the end of the movie. Like you said, that's basically it. It wraps up. Um, Daniel decides to stick uh, with uh, with love, and uh, he is now uh, apparently happily married uh, to Shiri, and is going to stay uh, on the planet. And um, yeah, then apparently the the second one was going to take place like twelve years later. Um, there's there's something, an event that happens that inspires Daniel to have to come back on on Earth, um, which probably um we'd get into more of like the, the origins of the, of the stargate or you know um but yeah i i, I don't know like it, it still overall works i think i think the film is still overall a fun film um there is some odd character choices there is some the through lines are you know in terms of the character arcs um are a bit wonky at times um the pacing uh, is a bit wonky at times and the tonal shifts are a bit wonky at times but for all that and for all the kind of derivative parts as as well it's still a pretty fun film yeah i agree i think that it's definitely one i'm glad i watched it and again we've talked about some of the other movies too especially in the stallone season or whatever where if I watched it just on my own, I think, and not for the sake of, you know, going scene by scene like we do in this podcast, I'd probably have different viewing of it or whatever, but I enjoyed it. And I mean, I would definitely, I'm surprised, you know, based on that Universal Soldier kind of did a, a sequel reboot or whatever. And then um, Independence Day did their 20 years after or whatever, however long after. But yeah, I'm surprised they haven't with Stargate tried to do one now of bringing back Spader and uh, Kurt Russell because I know they both said that they'd be interested in returning at some point. But overall, I mean, I enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. I think it would be one of those where it'd be a lot of fun to watch in a theater. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, you know, I, I imagine I never saw this uh, in the cinema, um, you know, when I was a kid, I saw it on video and then I saw it a couple of times on television but um I, I think it'd be yeah a lot of fun to see on the big screen and apparently there has been attempts to kind of uh, do some of those sequels um a couple of times but I think uh, they've kind of given up on it. it basically um at one of the I think it was Comic-Con 2006 uh, Dean Devlin mentioned that he was in discussions with MGM about doing the sequels that were not made that um, originally Emmerich and himself wanted to do after they finished uh, wrapping Independence Day. But then, of course, MGM wanted to go ahead with the TV series, not sequels to the movie. And then, so, yeah, 2006, there were some discussions, but they were never, uh, they never fully went anywhere. Uh, but there was like an official announcement of uh, like a reboot of Stargate to be done with Emmerich, uh, with Devlin in like 2013. Uh, and apparently that the discussions did go further and they did come pretty close to starting something. Uh, but then again, it, it just got into development hell 
and um, the last that was heard was some years back, I think 2016, um, Devlin did an interview with Empire uh, where it was like, no, uh, this falling apart again. And he just wants to concentrate on working with his, he's got his own production company and doing stuff uh, more uh, independently and not kind of, he just, it seems like he can no longer be arsed, uh, kind of dealing with uh, studio politics and is more interested in doing stuff uh, for his own production company. And it seems like Emmerich is kind of doing uh, his own thing. So, yeah, the Stargate reboot is probably something uh, we're not going to see. That's, I mean, it's a shame because I think, again, like we've talked about um, with this one and especially the series of, I, I feel like there, again, I guess, repeating myself, I feel like there is a lot of potential and there is kind of, a lot of world built around the whole this whole franchise that you could really do something pretty cool with it but i mean i'm fine with the way it is now too <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm kind of the same like there's stuff in this movie where you're just like oh you could give a bit more explanation to that or oh you could fill this character out a bit more you know or you could add this little touch and um give me some answers to this or that and but it it is what it is and i still enjoy this movie and i still enjoyed like uh you know sg1 when when i watched this when i watched that um in my teens and stuff like that and into my uh 20s i think it stopped in 2006 or something so i'd be like 21 um and then yeah and i think arc of truth the first sequel was not long after that so yes uh when, when it was on um i i enjoyed it and if there was a reboot uh, i probably i probably check it out because i still feel even with there being three tv shows and this movie and all this other stuff uh, out there i still think um it the original concept is a great concept the stargate concept is a great concept and there's still way more that i think you could do with it and uh yeah if there is more stargate to be had then then bring it on i'll check it out yep and so that is kind of our our ending for this one which yeah again it ends very abruptly but that's all i have left on yep (laughs) <laughs> that that i think we have said everything that we have to say uh, on uh, stargate and uh, we're kind of yeah we're kind of jumping ahead we're not filling in the gaps we're and we're ending abruptly we are very much on brand uh, for this movie uh, so that's just our thoughts though uh if if you really love stargate uh, you know write in tell us if you really don't like stargate right write in tell us or if you're kind of in the middle you like it but you don't necessarily love it uh you know like us uh, yeah yeah if, you know if you agree with us if you disagree with us it doesn't matter we just like the feedback uh so tell us your thoughts and thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of all 90s action all the time it just leaves me to thank my host uh, craig uh, for joining me once again on this latest episode and craig as always uh, can you 
give everybody your social media details and tell them where they can talk to you or shout at you or whatever our audience particularly wants to do. Of course. Yeah. By social media, you can just look me up at Craig Dram, D-R-A-H-E-I-M. Um, on Twitter or Instagram, I think it's Craig.Dram, if I remember correctly. Um, but the, I'm pretty sure there's only one or two Craig Drams. So it's pretty easy to find. Um, but yeah, also uh, the podcast that I co-host, Bloodhound Picks, where we will kind of highlight obscure or independent older horror films. We bring people within the horror community from bloggers to filmmakers to whatever it may be and kind of talk about what it's like working in this in that that community but you can find that at bloodhound picks p-i-x and that's on twitter instagram facebook anywhere you want to look or even uh, the website bloodhoundpicks.com but yeah as always thank you so much for having me scott and it's always a pleasure to do, do this with you and if you want to talk to this podcast right you can uh, do that uh, on our twitter page at 90s um at 90s all that's that's our twitter handle um and if you want to listen to me talking about horror uh you can at my podcast new horror express which you can check out um at my website newhorrorexpress.com or you can check us out on facebook or check us out on twitter at new horror exp uh, but that is all for this episode uh, the last thing it leads me to say is um, if you have enjoyed this episode then it would be great if you could uh, leave us a review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and please can you make those reviews uh, five stars because if you don't make the reviews five stars it upsets the podcast algorithm gods and as we all obey the laws of the podcast algorithm gods as podcasters and don't want to upset them um we've got to make those reviews uh five stars so thanks again for your five star review uh but anyway that's all for this time but be sure to join us next time when we will be talking about executive decision which we did not talk about last week even though we're putting out the week after this again like this movie don't think about the logic of it too much thanks for listening see you next time